You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, page 809, if you're using one of the black uh, hardcover Bibles under your seat where you can find that text. But this year for, for our Mercy and Justice Month, we're looking at this part of the Bible known as the Beatitudes. And we find the Beatitudes at the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 5 in what's known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As we study the Beatitudes this month, we are learning that Christians are not just people who care about mercy and justice. And we're not just people that do mercy and do justice, but that we are really at an identity level, Jesus' merciful and just people. So the Beatitudes are not a a checklist by which we earn a position in the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are really how, how men and women who have already become citizens of God's kingdom through the work of Jesus, how we now are meant to live as people that have been redeemed by Jesus. The attributes that Jesus is describing here should increasingly characterize our lives. And as Jesus is teaching throughout this text, they are what a truly blessed life looks like. So last week we saw that that the poor in spirit are blessed. We have nothing in ourselves that we can bring to God. And we learned last week that that's essential for us becoming merciful and just people because before we can ever honestly with integrity be those that display the mercy of God to others, we have to recognize just how much we need it for ourselves. Last week, we also saw that we are blessed when we mourn and specifically when we mourn our sin and when we mourn the the evil that exists in our world. Jesus's people are deeply moved by the condition of things. When we look around our world, when we read statistics like, you know, 1100 kids are going to age out of the foster care system this year and have the government to call their parents. And we see things like that. We mourn that and we say, that's not the way it's meant to be. It's not the way it should be. And when we mourn, Jesus taught last week, we will be comforted. God is the God of all comfort. He's the one who will one day bind up all that's been broken and will heal all that's been wounded. And that compels us even as we mourn in this life to be merciful and just people awaiting that future comfort. So today we're going to look at the next two Beatitudes in verses five and six. Uh, But during this series each week, I'm going to start reading back at verse one, just so you get a sense that this really is one text that builds together and not separate, isolated things. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Matthew chapter five and picking it up in verse one. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Gracious God, we are reminded today, especially in this text, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we ask by your spirit that even now in this moment, you would make us hungry for your word, that it would nourish us today in your ways, in the ways of eternal life. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven. Amen. 
This morning, we're going to look at, at verses five and six and these, this third and this fourth beatitude. And, and just like last week, for each of them, uh, we'll look first at the attribute that Jesus is describing. We'll look at the, the corresponding blessing that goes with it. And then we'll talk about some implications or applications for us as we seek to be Jesus's merciful and just people. So first, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. A couple years ago, uh, some friends in our neighborhood got a cute little brand new puppy named Teddy. Uh, and Teddy, even now, some years later, at fully grown, is only about 25 pounds. So pretty small, pretty small dog. In those early days, he doesn't still do this now, but in the early days when we would be outside with our dog, Cinder, who's 65 pounds, you know, a good bit bigger than, than Teddy, uh, and Teddy would get near Cinder, Teddy would immediately lie down and roll over on his back. And it, was, it seemed to be kind of his way of communicating like, hey, you win, right? You're in charge. You're a lot bigger than I am. I'm not going to put up a fight. I'm just going to roll over. You just do what you're going to do. When, when you and I hear the word meek, that is perhaps the picture that comes to our mind. A kind of, of, of weak submission or passivity, which in the face of, of conflict or danger or difficulty just kind of rolls over. That's not what Jesus means by meekness. When we consider this attribute, we have to first remember that meekness is something Jesus characterized himself by. He goes on to say later in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And that word gentle in Matthew 11 is the very same word translated meek here in Matthew chapter five. It's also the same word that Matthew uses even later in his gospel in chapter 21, when he describes Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem on what we now celebrate as Palm Sunday. He didn't come in as some expected riding on a war horse, but he came humbly or meek, the same word in line with this Old Testament prophecy, mounted on a donkey, a beast of burden. So when we think about what it means for us to be meek, Think about what it looked like in the earthly life and in the ministry of Jesus. It's not exhaustive, but let's just step through a little list of what meekness then is versus what meekness is not. Meekness is not self-pity or feeling sorry for yourself. Uh, Meekness is not insecurity. Instead, meekness is deep security. It's being so confident of your identity that you don't have to assert it all the time. Meekness is also not passivity. It's not an abdication of responsibility or an avoidance of stepping into significant places of of leadership. Instead, meekness is active gentleness and lowliness. So meekness steps boldly into relationships. It steps boldly into hard situations, but it steps in and takes the low place without making demands based on position or status or or anything like that. And meekness is not powerlessness. It's not like Teddy in those early days, rolling over and playing small. Instead, as we see in the life of Jesus, meekness is compatible with incredible strength, with incredible authority, with incredible power. So to put all of that together then, meekness is really this this beautiful blend of great confidence and great humility. It is strength applied gently 
and selflessly. Or if you want to think about it this way, meekness is power applied mercifully. Power applied mercifully. And as you might be picking up on, meekness, therefore, involves other people, requires other people. We can be poor in spirit. We can mourn our sin in our relationship with God without anybody else around. It doesn't require anybody else to to do that. But genuine meekness is only revealed in our interactions with others. For example, it is way easier for me, and maybe this is true for you, it's way easier for me to point out my own flaws than to have somebody else point them out to me. It's way easier for me to say, man, I messed that up than to someone come and go, hey, Matt, you messed that up, right? Same content, different messenger, feels really different. When I, when I see it, when I say it first, it sounds meek and hopefully it, it really is. But if you wanna know for sure, if you wanna test the genuineness of it, have someone else say it to you first. When that happens, my visceral response can be like, who the blank are you? right? Like, who do you think you are to bring that to me like that? Internally, at least, I can get really defensive and I can get angrily assertive and I can be harsh with my thoughts or sometimes my words, which is the opposite of what what meekness is. And this is why it's so important that when Jesus teaches these Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to those who are already his followers. He's not giving this new standard to earn your way into his kingdom. He's saying, this is how to live when you are in my kingdom because genuine meekness can only be displayed by those who have entered the kingdom of God. You can only be meek if you have such deep confidence in your identity as a citizen of God's kingdom, that you are a son or daughter of the living God, that you don't have to go into all your relationships and assert that all the time. Only when you have that kind of confidence are you free to use your strength gently. Only then are you free to apply power you might have, right? The abilities and gifts or the positions that God has given you. Only then are you free to use that in a merciful way. You don't have to use your strength and power to assert or build up yourself. You can use them to serve the good of others. And it's this meekness that is blessed by God. Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Let's talk for just a minute about that blessing. Jesus here is is borrowing some language from the Old Testament. Many times over in the Old Testament, the Israelites were told that they were going to inherit a specific plot of land, the promised land. Just like parents, uh, many times if they're able, they try to leave an inheritance to their children. God had secured and was promising the inheritance of that land to his people. Well, in this beatitude, Jesus is taking that promise And he is applying it to the new heavens and the new earth. He's saying, and this is alluded to then throughout the rest of the New Testament, that at the end of the age, when Jesus comes again, the citizens of God's kingdom will inherit the earth, that they will reign with God in the new heavens and new earth forever. So we this morning as Christians, with even more clarity than the psalmist got to say in Psalm 16, we get to say, I have a beautiful inheritance. I have a beautiful inheritance. Notice though that that this inheritance is for the meek. It's for the exact opposite of who we think would be the people that would inherit the earth, right? In our our world, in our kingdoms, it's the aggressive, it's the self-asserting, it's the self-exalting who seem to inherit everything. It's those who are willing to, to steamroll 
other people. It's those who are willing to apply their strength and their power in selfish and harsh and in unmerciful ways. But that is not how the kingdom of God works. The way that the citizens of God, the people of God inherit the earth is by meekness. So how can we begin to apply this as we're seeking to become Jesus's merciful and just people? Let me mention both a broad application and then a narrow application. Broadly, when we come to January each year and we talk about these mercy and justice issues, what we're really considering, if you step back a little, is how can we change the world, right? How can we bring positive transformation into the time, into the place that God has set for us? We're here. We want to see that kingdom of God come and God's will be done here as it is in heaven. We want to see that kind of transformation. How does that come about? That's not a new conversation in case you're wondering. This has been debated for centuries and it's being debated in some Christian circles right now. Some of you may be more or less aware of that, but, but there are some Christians that would advocate in this time and place, in this moment, for different forms of conquering, for different kinds of, of cultural dominion or domination. Some Christians talk a lot right now about building or rebuilding various expressions of Christendom in our increasingly post-Christian society, rebuilding certain aspects of that. Even for some where like the morality, the laws of God's kingdom are forcibly and legally enacted. And often their understanding, their hope is that that is going to be what ultimately ushers in the kingdom of God. That is how the people of God will, will cling to, will lay hold of this inheritance of the earth. Now I can understand the, the appeal of that at times. I, I get that in this post-Christian world, when we feel kind of out of control and we feel increasingly marginalized and we feel powerless, that we, we kind of have this response of like, nope, I gotta, I gotta cling to some of that. I gotta fight for some of that back. But what I need you to see this morning is that that is the exact opposite of what Jesus says here. That is not who Jesus says will inherit the earth. Just like in the first century, the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah who would come on the war horse, who would bring military victory, who would usher in the kingdom of God by force. And they got Jesus instead, right? They got Jesus instead. And Jesus certainly did inaugurate the kingdom of God. And he certainly did secure an inheritance for the people of God, but he did all of that through meekness, through power applied mercifully. Church, we must do God's work in God's ways. God's work in God's ways. Jesus' people seek the kingdom through Jesus' means. And so, yeah, there is a huge need for us to build and to shape our culture and our world. There's a huge need, as Jesus says in this sermon, right after the Beatitudes, to live as salt and light, to be present in our society, to, to bring transformation, to bring influence into our culture. But people who set themselves up to domineer and to conquer are not, in the end, the ones who inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. So let us always seek the transformation of this world through meekness, through strength applied gently, through power applied mercifully. That's a broader application. The narrower application is this. It's for you and I in our own lives to become so confident of our own identity and so confident of our own inheritance that we can be meek agents of mercy in the world. 
right? In Jesus, I hope you see this this morning. In Jesus, you have a beautiful inheritance. The new heavens and the new earth are being prepared for you. For you. As a citizen of God's kingdom, as a son or daughter of God, you have been given everything. We sang about it together this morning. I can sing all is mine in Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the world or life or death, the present or the future, all are yours. Because that's true, you don't have to assert yourself all the time. You don't have to use your strength selfishly or harshly. Because of you, who you are in Jesus, your power can be applied mercifully. So you can serve, among other things, you can serve vulnerable children and vulnerable families. You can serve caseworkers and frontline workers and caregivers without the need to be recognized. You can step into these hard spaces fully expecting that you're going to mess some stuff up and that other people are going to point it out first. You're not going to be the one that gets to say it first. They will. And you can keep pressing on because you don't need to prove something. Your identity, your inheritance is that secure in Jesus. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Second, second, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's talk for just a minute about what this righteousness means. John Stott points out that in the Bible, there are at least three different kinds of righteousness. When the Bible uses that word, it could mean one or more of at least these three things. First, there's legal righteousness. And the other biblical word for that is justification. This is the word that actually we got to celebrate together this morning in the words of encouragement. When Anthony read 2 Corinthians 5, and it talked about how God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's legal righteousness. That's that, that Jesus' standing now counts on our behalf. It counts for us. That's a really important kind of righteousness, certainly one in scripture. It doesn't seem to be what Jesus has in mind here in this beatitude. The second kind of righteousness in the Bible is moral righteousness, meaning our personal character or our conduct. As citizens of God's kingdom, we seek to live in God's ways. We seek to live according to God's good design. And that does seem to be some of what Jesus has in mind in this beatitude, but not everything he has in mind because the third kind of righteousness we see in the Bible is social righteousness. Social righteousness, or what might simply be called justice. John Stott says it this way, biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. Social righteousness is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression, with the promotion of civil rights, with justice in law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in home and family affairs. And so Jesus here appears to be highlighting a combination of those second two, of moral righteousness and social righteousness. And a combination, in other words, of our own personal holiness and of God's justice in the world. Notice, Jesus in this beatitude does not say, blessed are the righteous. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, this beatitude is deeper than outward appearance. It's deeper than our actions. This attribute is actually about our desires. It's about a passion, having a passion for personal holiness and for God's justice. For most of us, I know this is not all of us here, but for most of us, 
the metaphor of hungering and thirsting for something has kind of lost its punch. Okay, when's the last time you were really hungry for physical food? When's the last time you were really thirsty for water and didn't have a fridge or a pantry full of, of options, didn't have a grocery store or a bunch of restaurants like within a few minutes of where you were? When's the last time you went without food or water and actually felt the pain, the ache of hunger and thirst? To hunger and thirst for righteousness is, is that. It's to ache for it. It's that kind of yearning or longing. It's, it's not a passing kind of feeling, but a, but a really sustained deep desire. As one author put it, it's the controlling passion of our life. And Jesus says here that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied, will be satisfied. What does that blessing mean? What does that blessing entail? To be satisfied means to be filled, to be filled up. It's a word that was also used to fatten up animals. To be satisfied then is not having your hunger mitigated with a few scraps every now and then, but it's to be filled with an abundance of what you're actually longing for. God is the giver of of good gifts. And Jesus will go on to teach in this very sermon in Matthew 7, that if earthly parents like us know how to give some good gifts to our children, well, how much more does he, as our heavenly father, know how to give good gifts to his children? The psalmist says centuries before this, that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our heart. And so Jesus is saying here that that when righteousness, when personal holiness and God's justice is the controlling passion of our lives, we will get it. How amazing is that? You hunger and thirst for this, you'll get it. When you hunger for it, he'll fill you up. When you thirst for it, he will fill you up. God satisfies the longing soul, Psalm 107. And the hungry soul, he fills with good things. As we see throughout the Beatitudes, there there is both a present and future fulfillment to this blessing. In the present, aligning ourselves with God's ways is the only truly satisfying way to live. Some of us know that really well experientially because we've tried the other stuff and it just didn't satisfy at all. This is the only pursuit that doesn't, in the end, leave us feeling more empty, more hungry, and more thirsty. To continue the the food imagery, this is the difference between food that has real nutritional value and junk food, right? What, What my dietitian wife might call the difference between good calories and empty calories. The junk food tastes really good, right? Jelly beans, gummy bears. Swedish fish. It's been pointed out to me many times that my candy tastes are those of like a five-year-old. We share that in common. It's true. I own that. But that stuff tastes good. Tastes good. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. And if I fill my stomach with those things, especially now that I'm not like 15 anymore or 20 anymore, I wake up the next day feeling awful. Like I wake up the next morning, not only questioning my life and the choices that I'm making, but craving food with real substance, craving something that actually does fill, right? We live in a world that says, metaphorically speaking, eat whatever you want. If it tastes good, eat it. Don't think about if it's actually satisfying you, if it's actually filling you up and good for you. Just keep eating enough junk to hold that deep hunger, that deep thirst at bay. Keep mitigating it. 
keep medicating it? What if there is a way to actually be satisfied, to actually be filled? And Jesus is saying, there is. There is hunger and thirst for righteousness. Align your life with the ways of God, the design of God. Live according to that and find yourself satisfied in a way that nothing else can satisfy. There is a present fulfillment of this blessing, being satisfied in a way that nothing else on earth can satisfy. But the ultimate fulfillment of this blessing is future. Jesus says those who hunger and thirst shall be satisfied. On the moral righteousness, on the personal holiness side, think about this. When Jesus comes again, we get to stand before his throne, blemishless, faultless, without spot. All of the the junk food, whatever, whatever you run to, to satisfy that hunger that isn't righteousness, whatever is appealing to you, we won't have an, it won't have an appeal anymore. We'll have lost its power completely. We will be filled with an abundance of rich, satisfying food from the table of God himself. And on the social righteousness side, the, the justice of God side, one day we will see all of that fulfilled. The injustice that persists today, the broken families, the the commodification and the neglect of children, on and on we could go. The story of the world and all of those things is that God wins. God wins. God will triumph over Satan and sin and evil. As Longfellow wrote, the wrong will fail, the right prevail. Those who hunger and thirst for God's justice will be satisfied. So how can we begin to apply this to our lives this month? We can recalibrate our appetites. We can recalibrate our appetites. We can cultivate a deeper hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we focus on mercy and justice each January, it can't just be like a a nice yearly rhythm. It can't just be a box that we check. What we're doing together right now is starting the year trying to cleanse our palates. We're trying to recalibrate our appetite. I want you to consider this morning, this week, what are you hungry for? What are you actually thirsty for? If you're a, a resolution or a goals person, you've thought some about what you wanted this new year to look like. Did any of that have to do with hungering and thirsting for personal holiness and for God's justice to come to bear in our world? If not, I just want to call you today, recalibrate your appetite. Recalibrate your the other stuff, better physical health, reading some more books, maybe making a little bit more money, having some more free time. All that can be good. All that can be good, but it won't satisfy, especially not if it's become the controlling passion of your life. And some of us, I think this is especially true if we've been Christians for a while, we can end up kind of subtly, kind of in a sneaky way with a dulled, spoiled appetite where whatever level of personal holiness we've been able to kind of arrive at, we're like, well, I guess that's good enough. Or, or whatever kind of justice we're able to kind of see in the world at this present moment, like, I guess, I guess that's good. I guess that's better than it was maybe before. And then instead of doubling down and hungering and thirsting for more righteousness, we start to spoil our appetite with something else, with more hobbies or kids activities or side hustles or, or whatever, whatever it might be. Church, Hunger and thirst for righteousness. More and more righteousness. Recalibrate your appetite for that. Let this month in our worship and in our prayers, 
and our Bible study group discussions and the discipleship relationships you might have. Let's cultivate a deeper hunger to walk in God's ways and a deeper thirst to display the mercy of God, the justice of God in the world. All of that's possible because Jesus himself has secured your identity and your inheritance. The more confident you and I become about that, the more free we are to be meek agents of mercy. The more confident we are about that, the more free we are to seek the genuine good of this world by applying power mercifully. And likewise, Jesus has secured your satisfaction. He secured your satisfaction. He himself is the bread of life. He himself is the living water. He alone is the one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. So hunger and thirst for personal holiness and hunger and thirst for God's justice. May you know the satisfaction that comes from Jesus Christ alone and may it form you, may it form us into Jesus's merciful and just people. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you this morning for what you have accomplished in us and what you are accomplishing and will accomplish in this world. And we pray that you would give us confidence that we have this beautiful inheritance, that we will inherit the earth because of what Jesus has done. And would you give us a confidence that we are in some ways now, but one day we'll be fully satisfied, that you will meet the deep hunger, that you will meet the deep thirst in a way that nothing else can. Would that compel us to be merciful and just people here and now? And I just ask, Father, that even now as we get to come to your table, that in this tangible weekly reminder that our appetites would be recalibrated for more of you, for less of the junk, less of the other stuff that we fill ourselves up with, and more of you and more of more righteousness. Grant that we ask now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.